0: Alicia Graf Mack is making an indelible impression both on stage and off. After a distinguished career as a leading dancer for Alvin Ailey and the Dance Theater of Harlem, she is now shaping the future of the dance world as the youngest and first woman of color to be dean and director of the Juilliard School's dance division. Her love of dance is infectious and she encourages her students to embrace their individuality.
1: When I work with young people, it's all about recognizing the beauty in each person. And because I work in dance, literally you're taking space in a room. I always say to the dancers, there is power in your presence. This moment wouldn't be the same without you in this room.
0: You're listening to Speaking Soundly, the podcast that explores the art of artistry. I'm your host, David Krauss, Principal Trumpet of the Metropolitan Opera. As a musician in New York City, I get to perform with some of the world's greatest artists every night. During each episode, you'll hear me speak with these inspiring performers as we lift the veil on talent to hear about their process and the personal journey that led them to the stage. When did you know that dance was your thing? Was there a moment that you can pinpoint?
1: Well, I was told that I danced in the womb. (laughs) And from the time I think could move, I danced. And my mother recognized that I had a joy for movement. And by two and a half years old, I was in dance class. She said that I would imitate her when she would do her exercises, like in the morning at home. And she thought it was amazing that a two and a half year old could mimic movement with precision. And so I started my journey at two and a half. And from the time I could speak, I said, I want to be a ballerina.
0: And at that young age, were you going to performances already?
1: I was really lucky because my grandmother, who lived on the Lower East Side, and my, my dad grew up on the Lower East Side, uh, she was a ballet lover. And so when she had the money, She would buy tickets to New York City Ballet. And so when she learned of my love for dance, she would send pictures and just like fuel that passion. And by the time I was 11, I knew for sure, I understood what the profession was and what it required and the level of proficiency that it required. And so I was already on that track to become a professional dancer, uh, when I was 11, a woman named Donna Piedel saw me in a class and she was starting a school. And she asked me, do you want to be a ballerina? Do you know what type of sacrifice it's going to take over the next few years to become a ballerina? And I said, yes, I mean, really not knowing because you're 11.
0: right? because that's pretty intense for an 11-year-old. Did you feel like you were somehow different than your friends who were just busy growing up and didn't have a professional goal already?
1: Yes, I definitely felt different. (laughs) While other kids had a social experience at school by participating in after-school activities or sports, I left right away at 2.30 or 3, whenever dismissal was, and I was you know, wrapping my hair up in a bun in the car and sometimes changing my clothes in my mom's family van in the back of the car. So I wouldn't be late for class because I was so uh, disciplined that I had to be there half an hour early because I had to give myself time to stretch and warm up and be ready. And I wanted to be prepared the moment the teacher walked into the room. So I was, I was uh, obsessed
0: (laughs) And where do you think this drive came from? Is it something that you saw growing up with your parents or your grandparents?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think all of my great characteristics, whatever those may be, definitely came from my parents and my uh, extended family. My parents are extraordinary people. They are my heroes. They are of different races and different religions. And they had to fight through a lot of adversity uh, to have their union and to support their children. It was not normal to see biracial kids where we grew up. And so we grew up with a real sense of support and pride and a generous way of thinking. Both of my parents uh, come from families that grew themselves from the ground up, not from privileged backgrounds. And so we understood the value of hard work, but also of loving the thing that you do. The idea that if you find something that you love, you'll never work a day in your life. That was very clear in our family. My brother played basketball and I idolized him, I still do. And he was a a very competitive basketball player and one who had a lot of potential. And so he would practice really hard. Like he always had a basketball in his hand. And so I was like, I need to be like that with my dancing. So we both really took the deep dive with the things that we enjoyed.
0: Well, I mean, it's clear that you have an amazing family. And just another example of that is um, you, you have a white Jewish grandmother. And she was the one that insisted that you had a place on the stage, even though she was taking you to see ballerinas that didn't look like you. Can you talk about growing up in this culturally diverse background and what your grandmother meant to you?
1: I I grew up in a predominantly white community. Columbia, Maryland is very diverse now. But when I was growing up, I really didn't see a lot of kids of color. I really didn't see race so much when I was growing up. I just was very naive to the whole idea. I don't know. I just... I I never had experiences that colored or shaped how I thought about race. When my parents were first married, they were really not accepted. And so it wasn't until I was about three years old when I met my grandmother for the first time. I don't remember any of this because I only remember her being the most loving, the most dedicated to her grandkids and someone who always bragged about us. You know, we would go visit them when, once they retired in Florida. We would walk down the street and they would say, oh, you must be uh, Gertrude's granddaughter, of course, because I was the only, like, black kid walking around this retirement community. You must be Gertrude Graf's granddaughter. We've heard all about you. We know you love ballet. We think that's amazing. We've heard that you've been to New York, you know. So she was a, she was such a loving grandmother to me. And I think once she let go of some of her um, guards that had been built because of the time in which she lived uh, and the experiences that she had growing up, uh, first generation Jewish immigrant, was hard. Uh, But once she let that go, it was gone. (laughs) So I never, I never experienced anything but love from her. And I think she also knew because she loved ballet that she didn't see people who look like me on stage. She loved to needlepoint and uh, she made this ballerina artwork. And I'm sure that the instructions for the stitching did not say use brown thread (laughs) for the skin, Um, but she did. And so I had that image growing up on my wall and now it's in my daughter's room on her wall. And it wasn't until I was 12 years old that I actually saw a brown ballerina perform and it was life changing.
0: Wow. Do you remember that specific moment?
1: Do you remember who, who the dancer was? I do. I'll never forget. I remember sitting in the audience and the speaker announced Dance Theater of Harlem performing the Pas de Deux Les Corsaires, featuring Christina Johnson and Donald Williams. I thought I knew what was going to happen when the curtain went up because I knew that duet. And the curtain went up and I saw brown point shoes, brown tights, this beautiful yellow tutu, and this beautiful woman, boring, between like little, runs across the stage. And I just weeped because I had never seen anything so beautiful. And I think in that moment, I made some real impactful connections (laughs) to, oh my gosh, she's like a unicorn. I've never seen this before. And she is me. So I saw them perform. And then Donald Williams and Christina Johnson taught a master class at my studio. And so I got to take the class. And afterwards, I had Donald Williams sign my point shoes. (laughs) And he said, hope to see you at DTH one day. And yeah, eight years later, I joined the company. I showed him those shoes and he was like, never show anybody those shoes. It's showing how old I am. (laughs) (laughs) And he became my dance partner and my mentor. And we still are are close today. So yeah, it was a really beautiful connection.
0: That's incredible. Um, In your development, you talk about the many different stages of it, but was there a particular moment where you actually felt like you had become the dancer that you were aspiring to be
1: I've had a, a couple of moments like that in my life I think a couple of years into my career at dance seat of Harlem under the tutelage of Arthur Mitchell he was a consummate coach he was the first person who really gave me permission to live in my body I'm five foot ten which is a uh, very tall for a ballet dancer and more so than my race, that had been a source of poor, I guess, self-confidence as a dancer, mm-hmm. because I just stood literally heads over everybody. <laughs> and on point, I'm six two. so I would say, I- I'm, am I too tall? You want me to join your company? And he said right off the bat, I hire tall dancers and I'll find a tall one for you. And for two years, he called me Miss Minimal School. <laughs> And I said, what does that mean? And he said, you're six foot two on point and you dance like you're five feet tall and you need to take up space, own the space, own your body. You can't hide. So you may as well live in your body. And so he really taught me how to be large and live authentically in my own frame. You know, ballet is really about the aesthetic of line through space. And he kept saying, well, you have longer lines. So, you know, you can do more than anyone else with that. So how are you going to embody that idea? And he really taught me how to do that and love the skin that I'm in. Also Mm -hmm. being around so many dancers of color, it was like, wow, I don't have to think about how different I look because everybody looks different in this room. (laughs) There were so many shades of brown represented in the company that um, everyone was honored in a way. Hmm.
0: Let me ask you a question about dancing itself because I, I only deal with music, but when you're dancing, you're listening to the music, you're interpreting the music, you're interacting with the partner or, or a group of people on the stage. When you're doing all of the, plus you're remembering the choreography and, and you're executing it. When you're doing all of this, Where is your head? Like, what are you focused on?
1: There are so many things happening in my mind. (laughs) It's like the ultimate process of multitasking. Right. I think like any performer, I'm sure a musician as well, knows that you are so disciplined in your practice and know your body so well that the hope is that your muscle memory just kicks in in terms of, the technical aspects, and the actual steps. There's a certain point where I just hear music and it dictates what comes next. So hopefully, <laughs> this hasn't happened all the time because sometimes it's like a last minute cram trying right. to figure out what, it, what is a choreography. But if it's well rehearsed, uh, I don't think about the steps at all. And usually we we learn movement by counts, Um you know where the steps fall on the on the count but also by that time the hope is you're not counting either you're just moving with the music and so most of the time what's happening in my head is that that coach okay reach further or make your your mark on the stage so that you anticipate arriving before the, your partner gets there or i am trying to embody the character as an actor would so actually the steps fall away and really it's just um, living in the moment and telling a story and trying to translate something to an audience.
0: And are there times when you're dancing and you just can't get there or is it always this state of euphoric creativity?
1: <laughs> I wish <laughs> I wish it was always euphoric, uh, but you know what, if that were the case... Dancers wouldn't work as hard as they do. And I think that we are one of the most dedicated to the technical aspect uh, of the art form out of most of the performing arts. Most dancers take an hour and a half or two hour class every day for their entire life. And then we usually rehearse for about six hours, the movement, and then you perform. And I performed a lot there were some days where it felt like a job or something was hurting i've had a lot of injuries so i've danced through a lot of pain sometimes that pain speaks louder than uh, anything else in the in, in the body and sometimes the work is not always suited to your strengths uh i I as I said, you know, I'm very tall, I'm very long. So dancing slow and lyrical is my sweet spot, if you will. Right. But I was challenged at Ailey to work quickly, lightning fast. Uh, and at Dance State of Harlem too, because the company was known for its quick footwork. So yeah, I had to learn how to how to how to move. And that was not always comfortable. So yeah, there's been many moments. And that's why I said, I can remember a few times where I was just on a whole another planet. Like the body was moving, but the mind and the spirit were like <laughs> not even in the theater. Right. Um, and the other times you're aware of, of what you're doing.
0: You went on to become director of dance of the Juilliard School in 2018. And it might seem like a natural progression for a world renowned dancer like yourself your career path was anything but a straight line. What was the journey like coming from being a principal dancer for companies like Ailey and Dance Theater of Harlem to where you are now?
1: Okay. I'll give you the whole kind of <laughs> That's what I trajectory uh, if... in, in a nutshell. Perfect. So uh, yes, I joined Dance Theater of Harlem when I was 17 years old and uh, toured around the world and, Started to make a name for myself uh, and performed all these incredible ballets in lead roles. And when I was 20 years old, I started having pain in my knee. And it took us uh, some time to figure out what was happening like extreme swelling, but no tears or accidents. Uh, I would go to the doctor, he'd drain the knee and be like, I don't know. I don't know what's going on mechanically. If you're not in much pain, just keep on going. Maybe it's growing pains. I don't know. So, We did that a couple times, and then I did start feeling pain. I eventually had my first surgery, and after I had the surgery, my knee blew up even more to the point where I couldn't even walk. And that was strange for having a simple like arthroscopic surgery where they were just cleaning up small tears. And so I became very depressed. I couldn't dance, and for a year, I just kind of sat in my apartment trying to figure out how I could get back to dancing. And after a while, I realized I'm working against myself and I'm losing myself. And I need to do something about this. Like, I'm not going to be dancing anymore. So what am I going to (laughs) do? Okay, well,
0: you just said that very casually, but I know it was probably anything but a casual experience. What was that moment like for you when you realized that you would have to pivot and dance might not be a part of your life anymore.
1: Yeah, that was uh, that was by far the hardest period of my life. I remember my dad came up to take me to the doctor with my uh, MRI, at, like the post-surgery MRI that showed that everything was clean, there's nothing wrong, there shouldn't be that much swelling. I remember getting on the train after the appointment where the doctor was just like, I don't know, I think you need to go see some more rheumatologists or specialists or something. Uh, and just, I we got back on the train and it was Dan of Harlem's 30th year anniversary with my image on the picture. And I sat right under my poster and I cried like a baby, like big tears uh like convulsing sort of thing and I remember my dad just like holding me like in a I was in fetal position he was just holding my back like it was just like a cruel joke to do to like sit right underneath that poster. Oh God, that's a movie. That's- yeah that's like a movie. Uh and it was really hard. Um you know my whole identity was wrapped up in myself as a dancer. If somebody asked me who are you I'd say I'm Alicia Graf. I'm a ballerina (laughs) you know what I mean um so I was rock bottom and luckily my brother had just graduated from college and had taken a job with an insurance company in New York and so we lived together and that was a lifesaver to have family you know be there and he would be silly or have friends come over and watch tv or you know things like that and I did not want to move back home because I would feel like a failure if I had to move home. So I decided I'm going to apply to school. And where I lived, uh, I lived on the 20th floor on 123rd street. I could see Columbia University campus and I had a few friends who attended Columbia. So I was familiar with the campus. And on the days that I felt like I could walk, I would walk on campus. And I always felt really good being there. It was like an oasis. And I would see young people engaged in whatever they were doing or just walking to class. And somehow I felt uh, just good. It made me feel better being on that campus. So I ended up applying to the School of General Studies. And I just, <laughs> I literally prayed on this uh, application <laughs> every night. I just don't oh, know if I got in. And I did. I got in And I think that was the beginning of me coming back into myself. Like, you actually can be more than a dancer. What that will be, who knows. But there's a future out there. And once I started school, I also found a a rheumatologist who figured out what was going on. Uh, And I was there at Columbia for three years. I, I finished in three years. And by the time I graduated, my body was healed, healing, (laughs) and I started dancing a little bit again in school.
0: And what, what were you studying there at Columbia?
1: I was studying history and, um, I ended up taking a internship on Wall Street, uh, for JP Morgan. And I, I worked in corporate marketing for them for three years and I landed in a department that was also associated with their philanthropic giving for education, arts initiatives as part of their corporate social giving and sponsorships or program. And I knew that's, that's what I wanted to do when I graduated. And I actually, I had a signing offer and everything for a full-time job when I graduated, but I had started dancing a little my senior year and I, I think the bug bit me. So I ended up rescinding that offer and not taking it and returning to Dance Theater of Harlem after I graduated. Wow.
0: Well, that, must have taken a big leap of faith.
1: Yeah, it took a, it took a lot to get back into shape and like trust my body that I was going to be okay. No,
0: I meant to walk away from a full time job offer. Oh, and, walk
1: away! <laughs> yeah,
0: to turn away from that solid kind of opportunity. Yeah, after having already faced injury, that's that's huge.
1: Yeah, and you know what? I was really really nervous to tell my uh, managers that I was not going to take the job, and when I did, they said go and pursue your dream. I wish I had done da 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 or whatever it was. They say, you can always return to the sort of work. You have your degree. I'm like, that's right. I do have a degree. I can do this again. You know? And so that's what happened. I, I danced for six more years and then I had a really bad flare-up of my autoimmune disease and another tear in my knee and something happened with my foot because of all of the inflammation. And so I ended up going to Washington University in St. Louis, studying nonprofit management. When I finished, um, a job opened up at Webster University to teach. And when that job opened, I thought, there are so few full-time, tenured track (laughs) positions in dance, I have to take this job. And so I did. And I fell in love with dance in higher education. And I taught at uh, Webster University for a a year. And being in the studio so much, I had to warm my body up to be able to teach. And Judith Jameson was retiring. And she asked, can you come and perform for my celebration, my last celebration at City Center? I said, yes, absolutely. Of course, I'll come. Uh, I'll come and perform for you. And Robert Battle, who was taking over the company, saw me dance and looked at me square in the face and was like, you are not finished. And I was like, what do you mean? I've just gotten married. I have my degree. I have this great job. I think I'm finished. And I, uh, you know, saw my husband afterwards and he was like, Alicia, what you just did out there, you're not finished. Uh, Robert invited me to come and join the company. (laughs) after having left for three years, I went back to Ailey. I danced for three more years at long distance, marriage. And then finally, when I was 35 years old, 2014, maybe 36, 35, I finally retired after another really bad back injury. Uh, So I, I went back to Webster. I worked there for three years. I had my children and uh, and we moved to Houston for I was there for six months and then ended up interviewing for the this job at Juilliard so looking back all the all of it makes sense, but going forward, none of it made sense at that time,
0: yeah, of course, your story must be a tremendous inspiration to all the students at Juilliard. This kind of dedication and fortitude that you display, do you think that's a teachable quality
1: i I'm not certain that it's teachable, but it is showable. I've learned that you can't do that by preaching to them. You have to do that by doing the work and then inspiring someone through the work. I've seen a a change, like a shift in the atmosphere since I've arrived. Students who may have felt that they weren't good enough or felt that they were judged to students who are empowered to say, I can do this.
0: That's amazing. This sounds like a seismic shift from the pressure cooker and and competitive nature of a school like Juilliard or, or any top conservatory. And to hear that you've changed the environment that you could still strive for this artistic excellence, but you could get there in a better, healthier way is really amazing.
1: Yeah. uh Thank you. I, I think there's some messaging that we really like to give when the students are accepted into the program. And that is, you're already talented. <laughs> you already have the tools. They could choose not to go to school. Many of them could become a, a trainee or an apprentice in companies, but they want to earn a degree. They want that four years of refinement and uh, finding more information and uh, touring their artistry before they are in the field, which I think many companies are also looking for. So that's a positive. The students are everything, and they're so incredible. I I just love being around them. I love the youthful energy. So I feel very blessed to be to be here in this position.
0: That's awesome. When I used to take auditions for orchestra, the audition was all behind a screen. So. It was automatically unbiased and everyone was judged just on the music that they were making. But when you're auditioning and selecting dancers, you can't do that, right? Because everything is visible. You're looking at them dance. You're looking at their size, shape, everything. Are you able to separate their dancing ability from how they
1: look? This is so hard because dancers based on the look. We all know classical ballet or traditional ballet is based on the line. And so certain body types are not even considered. But what I know, because I came from companies whose dancers had been told, it is not the right thing for this. I've danced with all those dancers who were not the right thing. For, you know, 15 years of my life, and they're superstars. So I know bodies can dance. And so typically the first thing you do in a, in a dance audition is you take a ballet class. And it's so easy to look around the room and cut, disregard the dancers who may not fit into a certain aesthetic or mold. And I said, I don't want you to look at body type. I don't want you to look at like how great their feet may point I want you to look at qualities. I want a sense of understanding of strength in their body. We're looking at a coordinated way of moving across the floor. And we're looking for a spark, something that makes your eye go to them or makes you curious to see more of their movement. We're not a company that has to like cast by a certain look. That's not our job. Our job is to train these dancers so that they can populate the field in all different ways. And so I think that takes away some pressure, but also it takes away an expectation that everybody has to look a certain way.
0: Wow. You have an amazing job. You're right there nurturing these dedicated and hardworking students. What's the best thing about working with talented young dancers?
1: Well, when I work with young people, it's all about recognizing the beauty in each person. And because I, I, I work in dance and literally you're taking space in a room. I always say to the dancers, there is power in your presence. This moment wouldn't be the same without you in this room. I feel that if you set that expectation and you show them that you are going to be there to support them through this journey. They will rise to the occasion and then you will start to feel pride in the things that you do and you start to feel affirmed and oh my gosh i thought i could only do a double pirouette and i hit that triple and what does that feel like i worked two years to get that triple pirouette and finally i did it and that's a moment and when i get to see my students perform and i see them take flight I know what that feeling is. It's the greatest. It's just so special. I hope
0: you enjoyed this episode of Speaking Soundly. Be sure to subscribe, rate us, and leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. To keep up on future episodes, follow me on Instagram at David Kraus Trumpet, and go to our website, artfulnarrativesmedia.com, for show notes, links, and information on all of our guests. Tune in next week as we hear another inspiring artist speaking soundly.
1: Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands.